0: If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 7. We will uh, be wrapping up this series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, next Sunday. And so these will be the final two uh, sermons that we draw out of uh, the most famous sermon of all time, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then we'll make a quick transition into uh, our Christmas series or Advent series and uh, and then on into the new year. Uh, let me just say this uh, to you. Uh, this week, I've spent time just praying for many of you who I know uh, are traveling on Thursday, and you're going to be with extended family. And I know that uh, for most of us here in this room, we probably all have family that comes to these things where we interact that does not know the Lord. And I wanna challenge you to have the heart of a missionary or a pastor as you go to be able to gently, uh, to be able to share, to build relationships uh, with those family members. Um, I don't know when the last time you flew was, but the older I get, the more uh, I just don't like flying. And uh, I don't know if it's because the airline industry is changing or because depending on what company you're with, uh, it's, it really is hit or miss, Some uh, companies have an incredible ability to make flying so incredibly easy. And then there are others that have the incredible ability to make it so incredibly difficult and hard, whether it's from the check-in process uh, to what bags you can bring, how many bags you can bring, how do you board, when do you board, how they treat you when you're on the plane, do do you get a Coke and a a bag of peanuts now, or is it just water, there's no more meals, and so everything about it has just sort of been upended and, and it's difficult. And there's, there's some that are, that are easy to go to, and there's some that, that you would prefer to, to be a part of, I'm sure, if you've flown recently, and then there are some that you just stay away from because of the difficulty and how narrow it can often be. Well, Jesus comes to this place in the Sermon on the Mount, and he actually saves his harshest rebuke towards the end. Now, if I was giving Jesus advice today in a hermeneutics class at Southwestern Seminary, I would probably advise him that this is not the best way to finish a sermon. This is not the the best tactic, if you will, to, to sort of go after. And so I struggled all week long. With trying to figure out how to soften this a little bit or to work around it, but to still be able to be faithful to it because in this point in Jesus' sermon, listen, you got to hold on and, and buckle up because he's a little abrupt and it's a little rough. And it comes across in some ways as as even overly harsh, and I felt that this week as I studied underneath it, and God began to do some things in my own life and in my own heart to to uproot some things that that I needed to deal with, and I think this morning some of you are probably going to have to uproot a couple of things that exist within your life. But you know, we live in a day and age now where the idea that it was okay once culturally, cool and relevant to be a Christian, that day is rapidly eroding before us. The idea of of a cultural Christianity, a cultural Christian, is diminishing by the minute. And so now one of the most Countercultural things that you can do is to be faithful in attending church, to be faithful in studying God's word because our culture around us repudiates those things and it allows us in the midst of culture change to further stand out. And the reason why I say all that is because Jesus in this moment, if you remember, as he's addressing the audience that has come before him, the thousands upon thousands, the multitudes that are there, who he is speaking to is not the broader culture, but he is speaking to religious individuals who have gotten wrapped up in the culture. And have confused what it meant to be a faithful follower of God. In this instance, a faithful follower of Christ. And they have confused that with just being a cultural Christian. And so, Jesus' word for us this morning is this. He begins to, to wind down his sermon, if you will. and We pick up in verse 13 where we left off last week. And he says to enter by the narrow gate... For the gate is wide and the way is easy that ultimately leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who actually find it are far fewer than we think. Jesus is doing a couple of things in this moment. As he begins to speak, he draws this picture of these two gates that stand before us, these two doors, if you will. And one door being extremely narrow, and it's the, the narrow door that ultimately leads to life. And, and he illustrates it in that way to, to make this point and to magnify this point that walking with Christ faithfully is an extremely difficult thing to do, and it's the reason why not many actually find the door. But then before us is a, is a wider door or a, or a wider gate. And inside that gate and before that door is a much easier life to, to follow. It's a life of comfort and and a life of ease. It's not completely removed from difficulty, but it is certainly much easier to go through the wide door. I don't know when the last time you moved was. One of my least favorite things to do in all the world is to move. In particular, when you have to get to the big furniture that's cumbersome and it's awkward and you have to move things through doors. And, And do you remember the last time you tried to move a couch through a narrow door? And what had to happen with all that was this posturing, almost this gerrymandering, if you will, where one side of the couch was high and one was low, and the, and, the, and the couches twisted, if you will, at an angle. And then you've got to get around the door, then around the corner. And there's this great difficulty in moving things, having to go through a narrow door. But when you move, you pray for the double French doors, Or the sliding glass door where you can just move all the big stuff out with ease and and with relatively doing it quite quickly. What Jesus is doing is he's kind of speaking about salvation sort of in those terms. To enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that ultimately leads to destruction. What Jesus is saying in this moment What he's saying to you and what he's reminding us of this morning is that there are a large number of cultural Christians who are deeply deceived. They are deeply deceived. They love the culture of Christianity. They love the buildings of Christianity. They love the songs of Christianity, the books of Christianity. All the while, they don't really know the Christ of Christianity. And according to Jesus' words in these moments, this whole group of people that has walked through the large door, walked through the large gate, which is a life of ease, they have deeply deceived themselves into thinking they are something when they are not. Jesus goes on in verse 15 and he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he talks about false prophets in the beginning of the, of the book, and he describes false prophets in a way where he says these are men and, and women that, can, that, that teach unsound doctrine. So they sort of like just pull out of their pocket whatever topics they want, and they try to divide those truths, and they throw them out, but they're not, they're not uh, yielded or, or roped in or chained in, if you will, to the word of God and the message of God, in particular the gospel of God. And they teach all kinds of things. Paul goes on and he later describes these men and he he says they're slanderous and they're even murderous at times. These are very evil and wicked people. And and what this means is a false prophet is someone who seeks to gain notoriety and fame and attention through ill-gotten gain. Through ways that don't honor the Lord. They're men and and even women at times that that have forsaken the fruit of the Spirit and the love and the joy and the peace and the patience, the qualifications of of an elder or a deacon. They're no longer above reproach in the community. Uh, They're not thought uh, highly of. They're not sober-minded. That all the, the while, not just their physical actions, but in particular, what we see here is that these false prophets, they are dressed like sheep, meaning they look like you and me. They dress like us and and talk like us. And they know some of the words that we know. They even serve in in some of the ministries, perhaps, that that we can serve in and and do some of the things for God that that we can do for God. They are outwardly religious, but inwardly they are malicious. They burn with contempt in their heart towards the things of God and for the people of God. And they use oftentimes the people of God as a means to an end for themselves. Jesus goes on and he says in verse 16, he says, You'll recognize them, these false prophets, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is then cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So a couple of things here. Jesus is doing us a solid and a favor, and he's trying to help us identify who these false prophets were by the examination of their fruits. But can I say to you that oftentimes the examination of the fruit, when we think of bad fruit, we think of fruit that has lost sort of its volume or its shape and and it it almost looks like it's, it's shriveled up, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying here in this moment is that the fruit of the false prophet or the bad teacher or the one that has the wrong kind of fruit in their life, the appearance of that fruit may make it look like it is a healthy fruit. And on the surface level, everything about that level of fruit, that piece of fruit, it looks like it's eternal and it's good and it's come from God. But in fact, what Jesus is actually saying here is he's saying this bad fruit, it's like a poison. It's like Snow White eating the the apple. It's what you can't see that that becomes poisonous before you. And he goes on and he he gives some of his harshest words for those false prophets or those who are bearing bad fruit for ill-gotten gain. This diseased fruit that comes from this tree, from the person who takes care of the orchard, that one of the things that they literally did then and they literally do now is that when there's a poisoned tree, they will go and not try to fix the tree, not spray it with something, but they will literally just cut the tree down. And to make sure that the fruit doesn't infect the, bad, the, good, the bad fruit doesn't infect the good fruit, what that orchard master will go do is that he'll take that tree and all that bad fruit on the ground and he'll go make a big old pile over here and he'll start a fire and he'll burn the entire tree up. He'll just burn it up. So, it then has no opportunity at that point to spread its disease. It has no opportunity to infect any other tree in the orchard. And so, it gets cut down and it gets burned up. Both of these trees have fruits, both of them seem to be the same, but the bad fruit is the one that has the poison from within. Look in verse 21 as we keep reading, and Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then listen to these words, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, I'm just saying, if I was teaching Jesus hermeneutics, I probably wouldn't end here. It's a very harsh and direct word, but it's a word that's come from God to remind His people of a couple of things. And to cause us to go into a place of not confusion but introspection in our own lives and the motivation behind why we do things for God. One of the first things I want you to see in this this section of verses 21 when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, he, he uses this idea, this understanding that these people who Jesus is going to stand before one day and say, depart from me, I didn't even know you. These were people that would make the proclamation that they had submitted their life to the lordship of Jesus. They understood lordship. To call him Lord, to address him in that manner, meant that they understood lordship salvation. They understood that God had saved them from their sins, and they also understood that he was Lord of all. And they could say it with their mouth. And they understood it theologically. Yet the caveat here in that moment is what Jesus does after or towards the end of verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven, notice this, is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Meaning this, your will and God's will are not the same thing. They can overlap at times. But what happens is if we submit to God, truly submit to him outwardly and inwardly, what begins to happen is he changes our will and he gives us his will. And so Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Why? Because you're busy doing your will. But the one who will enter into the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of the Father. And on that day, they will say to me, verse 22 again, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do acts of service and works in your name? Didn't we serve you? And we gave you credit. We acknowledged who you were and all these things. We didn't cast out demons in our own names. We didn't prophesy in our own name. We didn't do these mighty works in in our own name. We did them all in your name. And what this tells us, these, these people that, that are confused, is it tells us a couple of things. Number one, that cultural Christians look very close to real Christians. We look almost identical at times. We, there's sameness and, and there's likeness. But then Jesus says that for the, for the truly one that is, that is born again, the authentic Christian, we know at the end of verse 21 that these authentic Christians are motivated by doing what it is the Lord wants them to do. Not what they want. Not what neighbor wants or friend wants or even spouse wants, but their motivation comes from adhering to and following and doing the will of God. But I think it also tells us something about these cultural Christians in verse 22 that they don't often realize that they're not actually saved. And Here's what I think happens sometimes in Baptist culture or in evangelical culture. I think sometimes we get a false sense of assurance in our life that because I prayed a prayer that it's the prayer or the magical formula or the incantation or whatever that is, the the Harry Potter spell thing that we say. I don't know what that is. But we think that just because we prayed a prayer, and I'm not against praying a prayer, I think it, it, it helps us clarify what it is that we believe. I'm not knocking the prayer. What I am knocking is the hope that we put in that one moment in time To sustain us for the rest of our life and then what happens is the pattern of our life does not match the profession of what we said all those years ago and what Jesus is saying emphatically here in this moment and he's telling his people is that the posture of your life the rhythms of your life they must They must always match the prayer that you prayed when you were 17 or 25 or 12 or 82. Wherever it is that you find yourself on the spectrum, we are to continually and persistently walk with God and to pursue him and to seek to do the will of our Father. Because God is is after something in this room. He's, He's not after just a percentage of your life. He doesn't want nine tenths or three fourths or two thirds, but he wants the whole thing. Can you imagine for a moment that when I married Haley and I said to her, listen, darling, uh, there's 24 hours in a day. I'm going to give you 22 hours every day. 22 hours, I'm all yours. I'll do whatever you ask, whenever you ask. I'm gonna give you 10% of my salary. I'm gonna tithe to you and give that to you as your allowance. You go do whatever you want for 22 hours a day. I'm yours and you are mine. But for those other two hours, we're not gonna be married anymore. And you can go do what you want and and I'll go do what I want. Can you imagine what kind of marriage that would ultimately be? That'd be awkward and and uncomfortable and it'd be a sham of a marriage, would it not? That's not what God has called us to do. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's saying, listen, there are some of us here in this room that we treat God like that. There are some places, not just outwardly in what we do, but there are some places deeply rooted in your hearts today that you have not given over to God to take care of. And you're holding on to some things. And what we're doing in those moments is we're playing the the percentage game with God. And these are the people that I believe that when Jesus says, will stand before me and I will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. These were people that were not authentically saved and redeemed by God, walking with God. And to be honest with you, when I read this, it is, it's terrifying. And I know that, that, that for me personally, how I process this is I'm comforted by the hope of the gospel. And I'm comforted by the, by the kindness of our God and the graciousness of our God. And he is full of compassion and so full of mercy. He is slow to anger. He is steadfast in his love. He is unending in his, in his mercy and in his grace and his attention. He tells us through Zephaniah that he sings over us. And yet I hear Jesus say these men and women who said, Lord, Lord, look at these things that I, that I did. And you go, how do, I, how do I deal with that? What Jesus is saying to his children, to his people, is that the motivation and the heart behind why we do things for him, it deeply matters to God. And we cannot deceive him like we can deceive others to pretend in one way, but God knows the innermost sides and pieces of our heart. I know you've heard it said and I've said it here before and I wish it was original to me, but it's not. But I think it accurately reflects what this text is speaking about. And it's simply that old cliched statement that's still good and sound. If Jesus is not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. If He doesn't have every aspect of your life, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, then what our response is today is to do the following. It's just simply to pray to him and say, God, would you show me the places in my heart that I've not let go, I've not given to you. Would you invade my personal space deep within my heart, God, and would you pull out and would you uproot those things in my life that I've not given completely over to you. And then, Father, through your spirit, would, would would you mend the brokenness would you make what was once dead alive again, what, what once was, was hurting? And, and would you give me uh, peace and would you give me understanding that, that surpasses your, your presence? When you give that to me, it surpasses all understanding. Would you help me navigate those deeper parts so that I can stand before God and say, I'm seeking to do the will of my Father who is in heaven.